people of God, let's turn again to the prophecy of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 5, and we'll read the entire chapter, it's 11 verses, in which there are two visions that are taken together. Now, remember that Zechariah is a 6th century B.C. prophet. The people of God, or a number of them, have returned from Babylonian captivity, and there the temple is fallen, and they are called to rebuild that temple. And coming along with that is a resurgence of an understanding and appreciation for the coming Messiah. And that Messiah is constantly referenced prophetically in the book of Zechariah. So the first verses are given over to a call to repentance, and then the Lord gives to him a number of night visions, strange to us, perhaps this one even the most strange, and yet those visions are filled with promise and with encouragement, and today also with warning uh, for God's professing people, some of whom may not be possessing what they profess. Now, when we come to this, I want you to remember that we are told in the book of Hebrews that before the coming of the Lord Jesus and the finalization of Scripture, God revealed Himself in many different ways to the prophets. Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. And so we should be appreciative of the fact when we come to a text like the one today, that as, as Gerhardus Voss somewhere said, the Bible is a book of dramatic interest. In other words, God didn't give us just a static kind of textbook but a book that has prophecy and history and gospel and epistle and apocalypse and all sorts of literature, so that the people of God, as we mind these truths, are faced with all sorts of wonderful and interesting things, including those historical battles and so forth that, as a boy, I love to read and hear about, and still do. So we come to this text today, and... Uh, in chapter 5, this unusual prophecy. Well, let's go to the Lord in prayer. And now, Heavenly Father, we pray that the Holy Spirit, who has given this section of Scripture and all Scripture by divine inspiration, will now illumine its page so that we will see Christ here and see also our need of Christ and how the curse of the law can only be removed in Him so that not my works, O Christ, but only the work of Christ Himself can redeem and save sinners. And may the people of God grow in that understanding through this text today. And if there are those here who do not know Jesus Christ, may they understand through the work of the Holy Spirit precisely where they are, and that through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, there will be given saving faith and conversion that they may embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. And we pray these things humbly and reverently in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word and stand. Zechariah, the fifth chapter. <clears throat> this is the Word of God. <clears throat> 
Again I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, What do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, This is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Then... The angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, Lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, What is it? He said, This is the basket that is going out. And he said, This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar. To build a house for it, and when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, people of God, we come to a most unusual passage this morning, do we not? And these two visions, which must be taken together, have the strangest symbolism inviting us to pay close attention to the meaning that the Lord has for us as his people. The visions largely have been encouraging, and so here also, but we must look more deeply and with greater care to find the encouragement that is left for us in the text today. And so first we come to the vision of the flying scroll. So this is first, the flying scroll. We have given to Zechariah and recorded here a vision of a flying scroll. And this is probably a papyrus scroll. You might remember how easily Jeremiah's scroll burned. It was a papyrus scroll. Well, here probably papyrus, and it's, it's fluttering in the air above all the land for all to see. And the scroll's dimensions are 30 feet long, 15 feet wide. Now, remember that Zechariah was a priest and that Zechariah's prophecy draws constantly upon temple imagery. 30 by 15 were the precise dimensions of the temple court from where the Word of God was often read. So, consequently, the image represents, as Cleophas pointed out, the measure by which this curse upon sinners will be meted out according to the measure of the holy place, related intimately then to the temple and all that it means and to the Word of God and its authority and, and also to the infinite holiness of God that is set forth in all that the temple means. So the scroll is open for all to see and no one is without excuse. And the scroll's inscription, according to verse 3, 
on the one side and on the other, on this side and on that side. Um, papyrus was sometimes written recto and verso on the front side and on the back side, and that's what we have here. We have written probably, I think we can assume, the two tables of the law. And I'll be more specific in a few moments about what was written on this flying scroll. The Word of God then hovers above the people, more particularly the Word of God that is called in this passage the curse, hovers above the land. And its description in verse 4 includes entering into the house to bring that curse, the houses of the people, and those that are there being cut off. Literally, it's a consuming curse. So that as Kyle said, the roll therefore symbolizes the curse which will fall upon sinners throughout the whole land, consuming them with their houses and thus sweeping them out of the nation of God. The extent of the curse, according to this passage, is all the land. It's over all the land. You know, I'm really struck with the fact that the prophets had to bring the very serious and very, very heavy, weighty message of the judgment of God alongside the grace of God, the law of God alongside the gospel of grace, and that all who minister God's Word even today must speak words of comfort, but if he is faithful, he also must minister the disquieting Word of the law of God. The minister of the Word must be faithful to expound all the revealed aspects of God's being and His holiness and His attributes, as some of our old divines recognized there is a constant tendency in the human heart to abuse the goodness of God to an encouragement of sin. And that is warned of when we understand the law of God in all of its fullness. But we also know that among God's people, the visible church, there are always those who, who gather, who participate, but have not yet trusted in Christ. They are still under the curse of the law. They have not been freed from that curse by trusting in Christ and His atoning work. And so the Lord has prepared a ministry of vengeance upon the unrepentant. And it is that weighty, very serious message that the minister of the gospel is also called to proclaim. Because only then, by recognizing that we are under that curse and can only be relieved through Christ, can a person come to the point that he will see that his only safety is in the merit of Christ, that the only way that he can be redeemed and saved is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And who does this? Who brings this curse upon the land that hovers above the people for them to read? Well, in verse 4, I will send it, declares the Lord of hosts. And so it is Yahweh Sabaot, Jehovah of hosts, Jehovah of armies, the Almighty in all of His omnipotence that will and does bring this curse upon those who have not trusted in Christ. Now, you will notice in this passage that there are two sins that are enumerated. In verse 3, there is perjury and there is stealing. Look at verse 3 again. And he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land, for everyone who steals shall be cleaned out, or purged, if you will, 
according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. So to be more specific about what is written there on this flying papyrus over their, over their heads, what was written on the front and the back of the flying scroll above the heads of the people were the third commandment, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And I think we can also assume the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. Because the purpose of the papyrus over their heads is to show these two groups of people who are involved in these particular sins that the curse of God is upon them. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Do you remember what it says about the Word? For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that's what God's Word is doing as it is above the people. It is intended to open their hearts and bring them to repentance, indeed to see that only Christ can be the Redeemer. That's the purpose of the scroll. And the curse, what is this curse? Well, Deuteronomy 27, 26, in light of the law of God, cursed is everyone who continues not in all things written in the book of the law to do them. To which God's professing people in Deuteronomy said, Amen. And so there is this perfect, perpetual obedience, obedience to the law of God in all of its infinite detail, to which all we lost sinners are called, and none of us can attain. What are the two sins? Why are they singled out, perjury and stealing? Well, these must have been sins that were representative of the times. Perhaps if the flying scroll is above us today, as it can be when the Word of God is proclaimed, perhaps it would still be maybe the first commandment and perhaps the seventh commandment. But nonetheless, these were sins prevalent at the time. They are nonetheless representative sins because every one sin involves the breach of all of the commandments of God. James 2.10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So that sometimes the law of God has been compared to a chain, and when one link in the chain is broken, the entire chain is broken. And they have forgotten not only the majesty of the law of God, so that they are evidently pursuing perjury and pursuing theft. This is where their hearts are. This is where their lives are, many of them. But not only have they forgotten the majesty of the law of God, but they are forgetting the majesty of the lawgiver. They must have developed a very low view of who God is, just as is true, I'm afraid, very often in the church in our land today, and certainly true of our country. We have almost totally forgotten the holiness of God and the majesty of the lawgiver. So the promise that God gives is a, a very awe-inspiring promise because he says, I will send it out. In other words, I will send this curse. I will bring this curse, declares the Lord of hosts. And the result of this curse, well, he tells us very clearly, everyone that steals and swears falsely shall be cut off or destroyed or purged, cleansed out. 
And the curse enters even into the houses of those involved in perjury and into the houses of those who steal. So we read in verse 4, I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it both timber and stones. So that old Matthew Henry made the comment, God's curse comes with a warrant to break open doors and cannot be kept out by bars and locks. There where the sinner is most secure, in other words, in his own house, where he thinks he's most secure, in his own private home, there where the sinner is most secure and thinks himself out of danger, there where he promises himself refreshment by food and sleep, there in his own house shall the curse of God seize him, nay, it shall not fall upon him only, but upon all about him for his sake." So that we are reminded that house is not only a place, but it's a place with families, and that when there is the head of a household involved in pursuing sin, not only does the curse of God enter into the house and follow him, but it affects all who are in the household because we never sin alone, never, never do we sin alone. And immediately, I think we need to make some applications of this very short, very pungent vision that is given to Zechariah the prophet, don't you think? You see, the first thing we need to remember is that men don't like to hear this. And it's understandable. We sinners don't like to hear of sin, and we don't like to hear of punishment. But we must disregard the Word of God if it is not proclaimed and if we do not open our heart to this truth. You know, in this 2022 Ligonier survey of where evangelicals are in their viewpoints in so many ways, and I can't vouch for the survey. I'm sure they're very, very careful. Of that, I have no doubt. And the statistics actually may be low rather than high. But the Ligonier survey says in one place that 65% of American evangelicals believe that we are born innocent. 65% of American evangelicals believe that we are born innocent. Now, if that survey is correct, then American evangelicals are not evangelical at all, but the majority of them are Pelagian. It is an outright denial of original sin, in other words, that we are fallen in Adam, that we are lost sinners at birth, That is, David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. Why do we sin? Why are actions of sin? Well, the answer is we sin because we are sinners, because of our corrupt nature, which is the result of the fall of Adam. And so God's curse is upon lawbreakers, no matter how small the offense may seem, and perjury and stealing is because someone has a perjurer's heart and a thieving heart. And there is no sin that is small because of God's infinite holiness, and this punishment stems from God's own righteous standard in which there is no room whatsoever for relativism, none Sin must be punished, and no one can say that he is without excuse. So is this scroll of judgment hovering over someone today? 
If you're outside of Christ, if you do not know Christ, the answer to that is yes. Because Jesus said, he that believeth on him is not condemned. He that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. He that believeth on him, the condemnation is removed, the curse is removed. But he who is not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, that condemnation is there in his life, hovering over him even now. And so what is the answer to the problem of sin? What is the answer to this curse that hovers over lost sinners, as we see in this text, this curse of the law against us due to our sin? Well, it was seen right there, wasn't it, in the temple that they were called to rebuild. That's where the answer was. What was the temple, if not a portrait of Christ and His redeeming work? In the very temple that they were called to rebuild was the answer to the question of the curse that is over sins and sinners. It was right there in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. And it is still right there. The answer to the curse of the law still is right there in the redeeming work of Jesus Christ and Him alone. So Paul deals with this very curse that Zechariah is speaking of when he, in Galatians chapter 3, and I will tell you this is one of my favorite passages in the Word of God, so meaningful to my soul. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 and following, Paul, by divine inspiration, says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Curse be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's what the flying scroll is saying to those people in that day. Now it is evident that no one is justified. That means no one is accepted by God. No one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the answer to the curse of the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Do you see this? So yes, there is law in all of its intense personal requirement that must be understood in various ways it happens that we see ourselves to be sinners in light of the perfection of God's holy attributes. So that Charles Bridges, 19th century Anglican evangelical, made the comment, ignorance of the law, ignorance of the law is the root of self-deception. An acquaintance with its spirituality unveils the hidden world of guilt and defilement, brings down self-complacency, and lays the sinner prostrate before the cross. In other words, what a mercy it is when God powerfully, effectually brings the truth of the law of God to my heart and shows me my need 
For otherwise, I would be filled with self-complacency and pride and self-deception, and I would never see my need until I opened my eyes in hell. Now, that's Jesus' point in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 21 through 28. He speaks of the adulterer. He says the adulterer is not someone only who, who um, performs an act of adultery, but it's, it's someone whose heart leads him to look upon a woman to lust. Or an angry man is not just the man who, who shows anger, but a man who hates his brother in his heart. What is Jesus doing there in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, he's doing this very thing. He's taking the law of God. He is showing that we are sinners. He is showing the need of himself to them. Jesus is knocking out the props out of every attempt at self-justification. And the law shows us what we are really like fallen in Adam, what we are really like by nature. The question then becomes, oh Lord, if I see myself in light of the law of God to be this sinner under the flying scroll, under the curse of the law, how ever can I be accepted in thy, in thy holy, holy courts? How ever can I be accepted by thee, O God? And that was Luther's great question that helped to bring about the Protestant Reformation. For the medieval period was just a works righteousness system that continually said, if you want to be accepted by God, you do this and do this and do this and do this, and the work of Christ is fine, but it's not sufficient, so there's the treasury of merit, saints and Mary. And no, Luther finally had to come to the end of himself and see that the righteousness of God must be imputed to the sinner who believes in Jesus Christ, and it's only the merit of Christ that could redeem him, save him, and justify him. Do you know that? Do you see that? Have you seen that? The answer is only through the vicarious atonement. Children, the word vicarious means substitute, in my place. Only by Jesus in my place paying the penalty of my sins. Only through the vicarious atonement, Christ who died in the sinner's place, only through Christ who took the penalty of the broken covenant, the broken law of God, can you be accepted by him? And as Zechariah makes this plain with the priest in the filthy clothes, as we saw a couple of weeks back, and he will make it plain at various points, even pointing to the fountain open for sin, you have the need of seeing that today that there is this fountain open for sin. And if you continue on trying to work your way into heaven or relativizing the law of God, you'll not see it. Have you seen your need, I want to ask you? Have you acknowledged yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God? Have you acknowledged yourself to be a hell-deserving sinner who alone can be accepted through Jesus Christ? Let me tell you something. On the authority of the Word of God, I'm, if I've never met a man or a woman or a child, I know who they are. I know something about you if I've never met you. I know a lot of things about you. Let me tell you a few things that I know about you. I know on the authority of God's Word, Romans 1 and other places, that you are religious to the core. Even if you claim to be an atheist, you worship someone, yourself, you worship something, you have to because you're religious to the core. I know that you know that God is the eternal God, the true and the living God. You know that he is. 
And I know that even though you suppress it, according to Romans 1.18, yet deep within the heart, you know that that's true. I also know that you, are, that you know that you are answerable to God. The day is coming. That's what conscience is, you see. It's an indicator of the day of judgment to come, among other things. You know that you're answerable to God. I know that you know that sin, its punishment, is inevitable. And I also know about you, again, you may suppress it, you may push it under the rug, but it's going to continue to pop up just like the, uh, like the, 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 the ball in the, in, the, in the swimming pool. You push it down, it pops up. You push it down, ugh, good riddance. There it is again. I know that you know that this day of judgment is coming, and therefore there is a deep-seated fear of death and eternity. I know about I know that about every human being fallen in Adam. So you need to hear the words of Jesus. John 8, 24, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. To die in your sins means to die under the curse of the law. It means to go into the presence of God unsaved, unredeemed, unjustified. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. And that's the good news. Whoever believes in him has eternal life. Have you simply trusted, relied upon Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? Well, that's the flying scroll. That's first. But there's a second vision that is given here. The details are more difficult. And we need to see it because it's connected, it's related. So we see, secondly, sin's removal. Sin's removal. So to complete the theme, the prophet sees an ephah, which is a Jewish dry measure upon which was a circular lead weight. And the weight was lifted and shows a female personification of evil who is cast into the midst of the ephah and then graphically carried away to the land of Shinar by two women with storks' wings and the wind under their wings, leading them to take away this wickedness in a basket. So the vision's interpretation, the ephah, this Hebrew dry measure, equaling about one bushel, it was one of the largest dry measures. It was used to weigh corn, for instance. And here it represents the measure of the people's sins. It is a symbol of the sin of the whole land, according to verse 6. And the God who weighs the nations, which are but dust, who weighs the mountains and scales as hills in a balance, is, figuratively speaking, measuring precisely the sins of sinners in the judicial scale. And we have references to things like this in Matthew 23, fill up the measure of your fathers, and the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 2.16. And then we have this woman in verse 8. Look at it again. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. She is wickedness. She is the personification of wickedness. Now, why a woman? I don't know. In Proverbs, what is contrary to wisdom is the wicked woman. We read of Athaliah in the Old Testament, that wicked woman. We read of Jezebel, the very personification of Eden. 
Maybe it had to do with the temptation in Eden or, or because woman bears life from the womb and there is original sin. Or maybe it's just because abstract ideas are in Hebrew usually in the feminine. Whatever it is, we have a woman here, the persona, we have the devil in skirts, if you will, right here in this passage personifying the sins of all of the people of God. Wickedness, it says in verse 8. Wickedness. This is wickedness. Wickedness, says Matthew Henry, is nowhere so scandalous, so odious, and in many instances so outrageous as when it is found among professors of religion. He means those who profess the Christian faith. So the punishment of wickedness is found in this section of this vision. The woman is violently thrust back into the ephah like pushing down a jack-in-the-box, and over her head is placed this, this lead in order that she cannot, she cannot get out, she cannot do harm, and the Lord will judge sin. He will, as someone said, arrest the people in their sinful course. And his power and his sovereignty are here even over sin. And wrath upon sin is inevitable. And this talent of lead, talent is the heaviest weight in their, in their weights and measures. So sin cannot bear up under the awful weight of God's wrath, we are being told here. Again, as Matthew Henry put it, guilt is upon the sinner as a talent of lead to sink him into the lowest hell. So do we begin to see how awesome is the wrath of God? How awful it is. And the agents carrying out God's wrath are two women, obviously quite different than the woman that is personifying sin. These are servants of the Lord. Two women with storks' wings, with huge wingspans. Storks were known for how far they could fly, And the wind is under their wings so that they have the power to lift this up and take it exactly to where God has intended. And they take this adjudged wickedness above heaven and earth for all to see as it will be seen on the day of judgment. And the place of judgment according to this vision is Shinar, which of course is in the area of Babylon. And already Babylon and Isaiah and now here and other places becomes a kind of symbol of the wicked world system that will be destroyed by God. Now, this is not a prophecy of a return to Babylon, but to see Babylon as the place of punishment. Shinar was the place of the first organized world rebellion against God, Genesis 10. And the prophet represents the future from this image of the past The longevity of the judgment being indicated by the fact that it inhabits the land. And that's the vision. Now let's apply it. T.V. Moore said, Every individual in every nation has a measure of sin, and until it is filled up, God's long-suffering will wait for repentance and reformation. So this measure is being filled up for America for Russia, for Germany, for China, but also lost center for you. And the weight above rebellious sinners 
must be a crushing weight, represented as this lead talent over this basket that pushes down this woman that personifies evil. And it's a crushing weight that crashes her down. In my reading this past week, I reread a portion of a sermon from Romans chapter 9 by Robert Murray McShane, that wonderful, holy Presbyterian minister who died at age 29. And he said this to his congregation. Will you hear it? When lately in the north of Scotland, I stood on the seashore and saw the rocks standing out of the sea. It was very remarkable to stand and see the mighty waves dashing upon the rocks. There were two things remarkable in it. First, the greatness of the rocks on which the waves dashed. Second, the rocks remaining unmoved. No force of the waves could move them. Brethren, this scene is an emblem of what will be witnessed another day when God shall pour out his wrath on the wicked. Ah, brethren, will it not be fearful to see God put out his power upon the wicked, to see him upholding them with one hand and pouring out his wrath upon them with the other? Surely, brethren, the power of God's wrath is very great. If any of you have seen a great furnace, you will have seen the power that fire has, but fire is God's creature. What must his power be who is the creator? Well, this is what we're being told here, that there is this judgment that is upon sin. But notice what's happening here. There's something very encouraging for us, people of God, very encouraging, a very encouraging aspect to this very strange prophecy. There is more ultimate fulfillment to consider. The encouragement? Well, Zechariah's vision speaks of the eradication of sin. It's being removed from the midst of the people of God. It will be totally removed and taken away from the midst of God's people, we are being told. And the cross has purchased an environment that will be totally free from sin for the people of God, as we heard this morning in Revelation 22. The day is coming when we will see Zion, the people of God, the church, the visible people of God, totally cleansed from sin and sinners. And the prophecy calls us to take courage in that, and it increases our longing for that place that God has for us, that is promised for us, that ultimate hope the new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem, that place, that city built four square, that place in which there will be no sin and there will be no sinner and there will be no rebellion. The prophecy calls upon us to increase our longing as we read in Revelation 21, nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Imagine that. The day coming in which not only will my, I'm already justified, completely accepted by faith in Jesus Christ, but my heart won't know temptation and sin, all sin removed, but also the sin that I see all around me done away with, and yes, 
the sin that can manifest itself among the professing people of God, where there is the mixture of wheat and tares, all of that will be over. And he will take away sin in all of its desire and take away sin in every form, just as he did the woman in the basket to Shinar, to Babylon, the place of judgment. You know, now, when we think of our lost friends and relatives and neighbors and the lost around us, we weep for them, and we earnestly pray for them, and we long to see them come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has His people, and He will save His people, and He uses the prayers of His people in order to bring others to Himself without doubt. And we long for this, and we, we, the day will come where every tear will be wiped from our eyes. And there will be the judgment of the wicked. And our hearts then, not in self-righteousness, but because we are one with God, our hearts will be so one with God's heart that we will say, when the wicked are punished, amen. Revelation 19, we will shout, hallelujah. Because God's glory is not only manifest in the salvation of sinners, God's glory is also manifest in the eternal punishment of the wicked. He will take away sin in all of its desire and form as he did the woman in the basket. And then the theme of McShane's words and his great poem will be ours to the full. When this passing world is done... When has sunk yon glaring sun? When we stand with Christ in glory, looking o'er life's finished story, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. When I hear the wicked call on the rocks and hills to fall, when I see them start and shrink on the fiery deluge brink, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. When I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty, not my own, when I see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. Amen. Amen.